HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Wisconsin Cheese Cupid Pairing app, available on Android and Apple devices. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. As usual, we're here at Heritage Radio Network Station at Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn. So, um, maybe you've heard this retort from skeptics when you're, say, shopping at a farmer's market, or maybe bragging about uh, volunteering at an urban farm in your area. Um, people saying, well, that's great and all, but that's not going to save the world. Um, my guest today argues that many small steps, many low-cost solutions um, working together actually do have a great potential to help save our climate and um, revitalize our land. So um, his book is called 50, oh, sorry, it's called 2% Solutions for the Planet, 50 Low-Cost, Low-Tech, Nature-Based Practices for Combating Hunger, Drought, and Climate Change. And we are speaking with Courtney White. Uh, he is also a former archaeologist and Sierra Club activist. And uh, he had a previous book called Grass, Soil, Hope, Revolution on the Range. And he is a co-founder of the Quiveric Coalition, a nonprofit dedicated to building bridges between ranchers, conservationists, and others around practices that improve economic and economic ecological resilience in the western working landscapes um courtney thank you so much for joining us on air today how are you uh, hi kathy I, i'm i'm pretty good i'm getting over a cold so i sound mm. a little froggy, froggy. I, I apologize for that so no worries i think a, a few uh you know it's going around here too you know mid middle of the winter blues but uh right, right. but looking ahead for you know the new growing season coming around the corner um very quickly um, this book is really inspiring, and um, I'm curious, you know, it seems that, um, you know, why the focus on these small-scale solutions when it seems like 
the problems facing our planet right now are so enormous. The stakes are so high. And, um, you know, why focus on all these, I guess, less robust plans um, for your book? Um, yeah, I, no, I, I, I hear you. The, um, when I was first looking into all these issues, uh, you know, the, the scale and the, and the speed at which these challenges are coming at us is, is kind of dispiriting, you know, and they've got big problems. Uh, they tend to warrant big solutions, and that tends to paralyze us. Like, oh, my gosh, how, what, what can we do about climate change and things mm-hmm. like that? Um, but I knew from my work that there were small things that could be done, uh, things that, that had an impact, uh, things that were uh, beta tested on the ground, been, yeah. been, people have been doing them for a long time. Um, they had all of these positive benefits, and uh, they weren't getting much press. You know, right. I, was, I was not reading about them in the, in the newspaper or on the Internet, and I thought, well... Uh, I need to get these stories out. I need to kind of create a different narrative than the one that's pretty sort of gloomy uh, Mm -hmm. on a larger sense. And so I um, approached the publisher, Chelsea Green, and they said they were interested. And so I went to work uh, crafting 50 profiles of Mm small-scale, nature-based, low-tech solutions to these various challenges. And again, we're not making any of this up. Uh, It's been out there for a while. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we can do them now. We don't have to wait for some big invention to come down the road. Or a huge investment, perhaps, um, and, and, and research that, you know, since these have already been tested and, and done. So that's right. really exciting. Um, I love the, the 2% uh, uh, catchphrase that you've coined here. Um, it's, wait, so it applies to, wait, the, co- wait, the cost of the GDP, <laughs> wait. Go over I'll, tell, it. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Okay. It means to, it, it refers to three different things. Um, okay. And uh, I, I need to go back quickly to a book I read earlier called the Grass Soil Hope, which is about mm-hmm. carbon sequestration in the soils, meaning we've got too much carbon in the atmosphere. We need more carbon in the soils. And mm-hmm. if you raise the carbon, if you, anybody's listening as a gardener or a farmer, you know what that means. That dark, rich soil is uh, there's a lot of carbon mm-hmm. in it. Good for good for plants. And uh, if you increase it by only two percent, all of these positive benefits flow. I mean, mm-hmm. plants plants are healthier. They're more vigorous. You store more water uh, in the soils. Um, you know, the plants, uh, the microbes are happy. All kinds of stuff. With just a two percent increase in carbon, also done by who? Done by two percent of our nation's population as farmers and ranchers. So for okay. a small amount of people, for a small amount of carbon, and then finally a small amount of money, hmm. 2% of our GDP, I, I think, and I just kind of grabbed that number, is all we need to spend to get all of these regenerative solutions going. So for wow. not much money, done by not many people, for a little bit of carbon in the soils, we, we can address mm-hmm. a, la- a laundry list of challenges and confronting us, I think. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's fascinating that so many of these solutions, as you say, are low-tech, and they've, that you know, it's kind of going back to traditions that we've had for a long time, and we can get in, into more detail about that, but... Um, you know, uh, I, I think that climate change um, is something that, you know, a lot of people think is going to take a lot of money to combat. And um, it's already taken a lot of money out of, uh, you know, the in, in surprising ways through droughts and so forth. I actually just read um, interesting uh, uh, news that was unfortunate, um, but retail um, during the holiday season was really disappointing for um 
many retailers, including Macy's, because simply of the lack of people buying like a lot of that was traced to people not buying enough hats, gloves, scarves, and coats this winter because it's been oh. so mild, uh. and so you know it's it's affecting all different sectors. Right. So, um, right. pretty interesting. Um, so, tell me, just sort of in a nutshell, what um, carbon? You know, what the critical role carbon plays in climate stabilization? It, I, you know, I right. understand that it's good for nourishing the crops that are grown in there, but does it have a, like a greater role in climate change? Yeah, you bet. Um, and uh, it's kind of a Goldilocks sort of thing. We can have too much carbon, we can have too little mm. carbon, but what we really need is just just the right amount. And so uh, the planet uh, needs carbon. Carbon is the uh, ingredient for life. Everything that lives has a lot of carbon in it, including us. Uh, the planet has a big carbon cycle where carbon kind of flows around from the atmosphere to the plants, to the soils, back up in the atmosphere. If you remember your grade school biology uh, <laughs> photosynthesis, okay. uh, you know, what all green plants pull in carbon dioxide, they break off the C, which is carbon from the O2, which is oxygen, keep the C, let the oxygen back uh, out. And by keeping that C, carbon in the plant, uh, various places, uh, it can actually suck up a lot of carbon dioxide. And so, um, so the book looks at different practices that can promote or enhance or increase the amount of carbon that uh, plants and trees and human activities can do to soak mm. up soak up that carbon that's up there. We got we got too much of it in the atmosphere, not enough of it in the soils. I think, okay. especially out, out west here, where we, we've uh, we've really sort of poorly managed a lot of land and all those carbon stocks in the soil have gone back up into the atmosphere. So there's a lot of opportunity. It's kind of like a glass. Half that uh, was full of water. This uh, you pour out half of it. That's sort of what we've done to the carbon in the soils. We've we've uh, we've diminished it over time. So that that glass is half full, waiting to be filled back up again. So, that, so there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of need, and we know what to do. These practices have been, as I said earlier, been well vetted, beta tested, and ready to roll. That is really exciting. Um, so no doubt ranching in the western United States have been in the news a little bit lately and uh right. you know <laughs> with the Oregon ranchers um sorry I'm an east coast person so I mispronounced Oregon right there but um right. Right. Okay. Uh, uh you know regardless of the political issues around that um you know we you know cattle ranching is in the spotlight and I, I think that in the 80s a lot of people were blaming including president Reagan I believe um were blaming cows for a lot of uh, climate change issues through the methane, and um, but you also you actually contend that cows are part of the solution that we need more cows in our in our you know land. How so? Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, not, not cows so much, but the way the cows are managed, you know, mm. the way they the way they interact with grass, and so cow, cows are herbivores. You know, an herbivore is obviously an animal eats grass. Uh, there are lots of them out there, bison being a good example, and the ranches we work with 
manage their cattle like they were wild bison, meaning that they move the animals constantly. Uh, the land never gets grazed more than once per year, generally. So they try to mimic natural grazing behavior. Nature has this great relationship wow. between grass and grazers. Mm-hmm. You know, grass grows. It needs to be grazed. It's just the way nature designed it. There's lots of things that eat grass, one of which is cattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great thing about domesticated cattle is that you can tell them what to do and where to go. Um, <laughs> The ranches we work with um, use electric fencing, uh, just a single strand, so it's cheap. You can manage the animals and move them around. And when you do that, grass responds. It it, uh, it gets vigorous. It puts down deeper roots, kind of the way the bison would eat and go and fertilize. Um, and when you do that, there's more carbon storage. So the plants are, you know, they're... They're pulling more carbon down because they're getting bigger. They have more leaf area. There's more photosynthesis going on. Everybody's happy. The carbon cycle's working. Uh, and then the cattle are part of our economy, right? So we, the cows get fat. They go off to become meat if you're a meat eater. Um, and so it's, it, works, it works well. What, what we don't want is poor cattle management that overgrazes, that, that reduces the grass and the plants. And then the opposite happens. And then the plants die, and then we don't have a good carbon cycle, and everything starts coming apart. So it's not the animal. The mm. animal eating the, you know, its mouth is working the same way. <laughs> it's just, is it, is it overgrazing or is it grazing in nature's image? And that's management. And that's, that's what's been developed the last 25 years, is how to graze properly in nature's image. Again, it seems like a, yeah, like a really low investment uh, low-tech solution there and um, so it's is it education or what what is um, leading our cattle industry to to graze otherwise well yeah that's a that's a good question uh, it's uh, it's partly the food system that we have uh, it likes cheap food it likes it at high volumes um, mm. and so that that leads towards you know the kind of industrial food system that we have which has got a lot of feedlots it's got a lot of animals just yeah, kind kind of crank through the whole system. Uh, most animals, you know, start on grass. You know, they, most ranches are grass-based. It's kind of what happens to the animal later. Does it go into a feedlot? Does it go into that kind of stuff? So, and, and of course, in dry country out here in the West, uh, we have to be more, more careful. Uh, there's less rain. Uh, overgrazing can happen, you know, more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, again, those models uh, are out there. We, we, we know what to do. Uh, it is a low-cost system, especially compared to some of the big, fancy geoengineering ideas that folks have to, to you know, to kind of jerk our climate around potentially. So, so this is, uh, and it's not the answer. I'm not trying to, mm-hmm. a, I'm not trying to put a silver bullet out there. It's just uh, what I wanted folks to understand that there were some, there were some alternative low-cost nature-based practices that also address these issues. We don't just constantly wring our hands about, oh, you know, know, what what big uh, invention has to come down the road to kind of save ourselves from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, you know, the, the, the main point of the book is that nature still has the best ideas. And yes. so we, you know, we being humans say, oh, we, we've, got all, we've got all the answers. We know what to do. Well, guess what? We keep coming back around to things like photosynthesis, like the way animals graze across landscapes, to organic agriculture, to things that nature figured out 
quite a while ago we got away from, especially after World War II, and now we're, now those consequences are bearing down on us, and a lot of folks are looking back to earlier examples of how nature would do these things. How does how do animals move across landscapes? You know what, right? And you know they don't. It's so, almost comical. I mean, yeah. <laughs> So plow, you know, plowing is a good example. You know, okay. that was something I learned a lot about when I wrote the book. Was you know, nature doesn't till, nature doesn't turn soil over. Humans turn soil over to to, uh, to farm, and uh, that's why there's there's a no-till movement underway mm-hmm. in the country to try to figure out how to grow food in a no-till or no-plowing system. And so mm-hmm. it's you know complicated. But there are a couple of stories in the book talk about no no-till, organic no-till cover crops as a way to, to do all these wonderful things. Right, right. I mean, it sounds pretty simple. I'm sure it's much more complex when you have to re, uh, you know, reverse engineer the way folks have been doing things for so long. But um, so you, you actually write that if there's one thing, one of these solutions that you would pick out as the most important thing that we can do for the planet, it is, uh, you say, I vote for ditching the plow. <laughs> right, so you and, think- and you're in you're in farm mm-hmm. country, so that's probably um, that's probably risque. Uh, get, get myself in trouble, <laughs> but well, it's interesting because you know we, um, there's a, a Egyptian hieroglyph in a temple that's five thousand years old. And it's a plow. It's it's a two Ooh. oxen pulling a plow with a farmer. So we've been plowing a long time, um, but. Uh, nature, again, nature doesn't plow. Uh, nature grows things in different ways. Uh, mm-hmm. It grows them to things together. At, uh, it likes polycultures. It likes cover crops, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, when you plow, you turn soil over. Uh, the carbon in the soil evaporates. Up, I know, uh, yeah. You know, and all the things that... Uh, now, there's, there's reasons to do it, you know, the weeds and things like that. But then we lose a lot of that fertility. All the microorganisms in the soil die. And so then we lose the fertility, and then we have to put fertility back, and that's what the chemical fertilizers are. So it's kind of a round and round we go. Um, When you no-till agriculture, when you're just sort of drilling in uh, seeds into into soil with cover crops, the water is protected, the soil is protected, the the little critters in the soil are happy. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these kinds of things uh, are, are... beneficial products of this kind of process. There's some weed issues. I mean, I don't get technical, but there's, you know, there's some things that are still a challenge. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the idea is that you're keeping that soil covered and intact and letting nature do its thing. Right, they uh, are hard at no, work. It's, it's, it, no, it's, it can't, it's a little less efficient than industrial farming. I mean, I understand. I mean, so we have to kind of make some trade-offs here. But these larger issues are beginning to bear down on us, and so we, have to, we, we need to think, rethink uh, some of the things we, we've been doing for a while. Yeah, let's do that. Well, thank you for, for introducing this in, in farming country and, well, not introducing it, but, you know, voicing it <laughs> where right. it's less, um, less popular, perhaps. Right. Um, we're going to cut to a quick little commercial break, um, and we'll be right back chatting more. Listening to this show, you've probably used Tinder, you've probably used OkCupid, and maybe you're bored of these human dating apps. 
Want to play matchmaker with some more interesting couples? Food couples? Say, drinks and cheese? Well, you can now with the Wisconsin Cheese Cupid app. What beverage complements your cheese? What cheese complements your beverage? Wisconsin Cheese Cupid has the answer. Just choose beverage or cheese in need of a soulmate, and Wisconsin Cheese Cupid will do the rest. Feeling a bit adventurous? Pairing Roulette will create a random yet perfectly delicious pairing for you. So if you're sick of swiping left and right, put aside the dating struggles and make a match that'll satisfy even the loneliest of the lonely. Go to CheeseCupid.com or find Cheese Cupid in the App Store. Happy matchmaking. All right, we're back chatting more with Courtney White, the author of 2% Solutions for the Planet. Um, that is a quite interesting uh, cheese app there that we heard about from our sponsor. Um, so, Courtney, are you are you there? I'm here. I'm awesome. Here. Um, so you have a lot of great, you know, big picture, well, yeah, big picture, um, you know, farming um, solutions throughout this book. I want to talk about some, like, some kind of fun stuff that perhaps every day, um, folks like me in the city can get involved in. Um, you actually, you have an interesting um, um, ideas for transforming places in the homes into um, easy to man- maintain food systems through aquaponics. Um, tell me right. more about this vision. Where where can these uh, be? Yeah, you know, I tried. I tried not to just make it about farming and ranching and stuff mm-hmm. that happens outside the city. There's a lot of stuff that people can do in the city, uh, beginning with uh, urban agriculture, a lot of rooftop farms and things like that going on. But also, you know, kind of just different way of looking at your house. And mm-hmm. so, there's one chapter about uh, harvesting rainwater. There's a guy in Tucson who's developed uh, Tucson, Arizona, who's developed a wonderful system where he captures what he considers to be a free resource, rain. Yeah. And he puts it all kinds of places around his house and grows food and cools the house and has cut all his bills. It's called rainwater harvesting. Uh, it's It sounds, you know, kind of not exciting, but right. it's a pretty big deal, mm-hmm. especially in dry places where we, we had a lot of drought. So, you know, rainwater harvesting, aquaponics refers to uh, growing food in kind of little nooks and crannies in your house. And so it could be a bathroom. It could be an old pool in the basement. It, it's uh, yeah, a self circulating system where plants and fish and water circulates around uh, the, the fish waste becomes uh, fertilizer for yep. the plants um, the plants grow so you can grow any kind of food that you want any vegetable or even trees using this system it's completely self uh, self-enclosed right. um, and then it's taken off and you know, a lot of people are thinking about how do they grow food where they are and aquaponics mm-hmm. is a the great system. It's not. Uh, it's not fish farms. It's not the big stuff. This is just backyard uh, aquaponics. Sure, um, but I love the idea of taking the like a pool because uh, you know, like a lot of people put in a pool and maybe it's it's expensive to maintain first and foremost, and um, you know, or I can see people putting in an aquaponic thing in their backyard instead of a pool um, right. and to use in that same manner, but it gives you back food instead right. of, you know, um, just giving you, I guess, a, a dip in the summer. <laughs> so right. Right. it really keeps giving back. Um, that's a great right. idea. 
Um, and also, I, there's a chapter in there about gleaning, which is mm-hmm. to glean uh, fruit and, and other kinds of foods from gleaning. farms and backyards. And there's mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of food that goes to waste in this country. Um, you know, more efficient thinking about where the food comes from. What what if folks don't want it in their backyards? And so the groups come and get it mm-hmm. to, give, to give to poor people. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, and again, you know, a lot of this stuff is out there. It's under the radar yeah. screen. You don't hear a lot about it. Um, especially in the mainstream news, and uh, I just wanted to kind of get these stories out. Well, you talk about um, a food rescue organization um, that is on a national level, which I wasn't too aware of before. It is, um, what is it called? The Society, the Gleaning Network, the, a project of the Society of St. Andrew Charity. Oh, it's headquartered in Virginia. Right. Okay, but they build themselves as America's premier food rescue and distribu- distribution ministry. So, you know, we have a similar, we have City Harvest here in New York City. Um, and I just find that, you know, for all these great organizations that are doing, um, they're rescuing a lot of food. Um, there's still so much more food that is being wasted. Um, we could use more of them. And, um, you know, that's a, just a great idea, you know, in its yeah. own. Um, let's keep keep them coming and keep supporting them. Um, and, oh. and what I tried to do in the book was sort of integrate all these different ideas. So there's, you know, ranching and farming, and then there's stuff that's happening in cities, and there's a lot of ecological restoration stuff that's going on. That's a whole chapter. There's tech. There's uh, there's appropriate technologies, not, not just about you know kind of going back in time, and then last section is about wildlife. And I want to mm-hmm. make sure we didn't we didn't leave the critters behind in all this work because they have a lot to teach us, a lot we can do together. Absolutely. Um, another thing that you touch on is that um, you know talking about eating local, buying local. Um, a lot of people think about food, but not so many people think about clothing. Um, and, you know, if if we're going to get our food from a local food shed, nearby watershed and so forth, how can we buy things that we wear from our local fiber shed? Right. Is that a vision yeah. right now or is it – what do you think? Well, yes. And so this, this involves a project in the Bay Area, California. Mm-hmm. And it's new, and it's just getting started. But her, uh, Rebecca Burgess, who's the director, uh, had this idea. You know, we talk about watersheds, we talk about food sheds, we talk about local this, local that, but we we forget about clothing. And mm. The thing that's literally closest to our skin is what we wear. And mm-hmm. so she decided to figure out how to grow and manufacture materials for clothes within a 200-mile radius of where she lives in the Bay Area. And she's been working on it um, for about five years now and making great progress. And mm-hmm. so she's got, she's got the wool farmers, um, uh, the sheep, sheep guys involved. She's got local designers and dyers and artists making the, the, the designs and creating the, creating right. the products. Making I mean, them. it's really, so it's, it's, you know, it's small scale. It's still kind of boutique, in a mm-hmm. sense. But she's trying to figure out how to kind of bring all these different pieces together, the, the ranching piece, the, the arts and crafts piece, the consumers buying stuff um, in a way that supports the whole system. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, we have to have clothes. And so, you know, where, where do they come from? We don't think about work. Yeah. Well, they come from far away, and they <laughs> tend to be produced in ways that we 
probably be surprised if we knew all the details. So she is trying to create a pilot project that has a whole different model. It's, it's got a climate connection. The, the ranchers she works with are, are holistically managed and doing good stuff with the land. Um, it's a it's really a so brilliant project. That it's, is really really cool. There's, there's not much it's, you know folks can do right now to to participate because she's she's still in the pilot phase. Mm-hmm. It's called it's if anybody listening is interested. It's called Fiber Shed. Fiber Shed. Uh, yep. It's a nonprofit. She did in the Bay Area. Just look up Fiber Shed. Yeah. I love how this book has you have um, the contact info and basically it's a directory for all these amazing projects and innovators and movers and shakers in the food world and and beyond uh right now so that's really cool <laughs> yeah because um, because they're short stories you know i, I mm-hmm. only 1300 word uh, chapters and i you know I, I couldn't get into things i wanted to so there's a, there's a lot uh more if anybody yeah. who's reading the book is interested by a particular story then there's a lot of digging we right. can do to find out right. more now did you get to meet a lot of these uh folks who are running projects that you profiled i did That's um awesome. you know this all came out of my uh nonprofit work and i, I met all these folks directly i took a lot, of, a lot of the photos that are in the book mm-hmm. um there, I had to fill in some other things because folks would say, "Oh, well, this is other project you should know about." Oh, so I had to fill in <laughs> okay. some of it, but I'd say two thirds of the uh, of the stories are ones that I uh, know directly. Wow, that's really cool. Um, uh, one one of the things that you talk about um, when you talk about redefining local, um, you know, it's interesting because we, you know, have this idea of what local means in where I live and. Brooklyn and New York City, other people have a maybe a larger or smaller idea of local, depending on what exactly their region is like. Uh, what's that like when you live on a remote farm or ranch? Yeah, you know, that's a good question, because we, when we think of local, we tend to think about where we live, and we mm-hmm. tend to draw, draw a circle around that and say, that's, that's yeah, local. So that's most, like 10 miles. Most, mm-hmm. most farms, you know, who come to town um, decide whether they can afford it. You know, is it local enough for them to drive to a market or a CSA or a farmer's market? So this group in Oklahoma um, decided to flip that entirely around, and instead of saying, um, where the, where the markets are, they decide where the, where are the farms, and so they, mm. it's all it's all internet based. And what they do is they a consumer goes on the internet and, and places an order with the oh, it's called the Oklahoma Food Cooperative, mm-hmm. and then that order goes. They they look through all these pages and they decide what they want. All these different farms and ranches, and then they place an order, and that order goes to the farm, and then the the farmer puts that order together, and then the Oklahoma Food Cooperative people come and get it, drive it to Oklahoma City, repackage it and then send it out to the consumers so that uh, the farmer and rancher doesn't have to leave the farm or ranch. I mean, so you don't have to spend two days driving someplace yeah. overnight in a hotel, you know, hope, it, hope somebody shows up. Um, so it saves miles, gas, time, money, uh, and then the consumer gets exactly what they want because uh, they can shop online. And yep. they say, well, I, I want this meat, I want that product, whatever. Everybody's shopping and, online now and they get everything. And yeah. it's, you know, it's cool. And it's a very, it's a very different model than the mm. farmer's market model where right. the farmer and rancher has to come into New York <laughs> to sell something. Or even yeah. a co-op, you know, which is a, co-op, a store. Right, right. Uh, it's a, it's a, it was a way of having farms and ranches that are far away be able to participate in this economy that we're creating. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's a very cool idea. Um, the Internet's very, very critical to that, and that's an mm-hmm. example of how technology 
helps here, helps yes. uh, serve the kind of larger, larger effort. Yes. This is really exciting. Um, there's, you know, with every story that we got to discuss, there's there's many, many more, um, 50 to be exact, <laughs> throughout right. this book. So, um, but we, I guess that's about all the time we have today. Um, okay. But I definitely encourage everyone to check out this book and, um, and the inspiring stories and um and projects that you can perhaps get involved with or start up a chapter in your own city. Um, so thanks so much, Courtney. It's been great talking to you. Oh, I, I appreciate it. Um, and if anybody who's listening wants to know more, the, the, I would encourage them to go to the Chelsea Green publishing mm-hmm. website, Chelsea Green in yep. Vermont. They're a fabulous publisher. Lots of other books that they publish as well. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks so much again, Courtney. Thanks to everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Oh, I like the way you do. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.